0: About two weeks later, I got a phone call from a neurosurgeon saying, we need to see you right away. When I talked to my family doctor and I learned that I had a brain tumor, I went home and I remember thinking, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the thing that caused all that pain. Maybe this is the thing that makes my body not work right. And I was so excited.
1: Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the US, killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians, and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, Remedies Counseling a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution. Some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, Humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews. When Tracy Fossum had all of the symptoms of a heart attack, The emergency room doctors thought Tracy was drug-seeking and sent her away. Then her pain specialist physician implored her to go to a different hospital's emergency room because they were heart attack specialists and would have to run appropriate tests. But they thought Tracy was drug-seeking too and made her wait six hours before being seen by a doctor. And even then, and in spite of being in immense pain for hours, the doctors and nurses were shaming and denigrating Tracy. That is, until her heart stopped beating. At that point, the doctors and nurses suddenly became empathetic and supportive of Tracy. Not because they cared about her, but because they realized she was having a heart attack and her husband had witnessed the abuse and neglect and was about to witness her death by medical error. This is just one of many harmful medical experiences Tracy has endured while being sick since childhood, and they have formed her advocacy work around chronic pain. And as more long COVID patients report chronic pain, the number of patients needing Tracy and her team's support is about to explode. You can support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with medical error and or living with complex chronic illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here's my interview with Tracy Fossum and a word of warning as always that some folks may be triggered by Tracy's experiences with the healthcare system. Awesome. Thanks, Tracy. So my first question always is, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like?
0: I grew up in the Edmonton area in Alberta. I had an amazing childhood. I had two parents that were educators. Um, We grew up on a farm. We had horses and cows to chase and dogs and pets and animals, a wonderful sister. There was always, you know, little bumps in the road, but I can't remember ever having something that I really wanted or needed that wasn't available or that didn't happen. Of course, that was within reason. I mean, <laughs> I still didn't get my unicorn. Um, but it was, it was a good life with a focus on education, um, independence, um, a love of nature, fishing, camping, that kind of thing. Oh,
1: wow. Sort of idyllic.
0: You know, it was.
1: So after you left the farm and entered adulthood, where did your life take you?
0: Well, I didn't exactly leave the farm. I went into agriculture. I I had a baby when I was uh, just finishing off high school, so I graduated. Tough, tough, but I did it. Um, and then I got an opportunity to attend an agricultural college here uh, with a program that was being industry sponsored to meet the new requirements that were coming down the pike for the agricultural industry. I, I went, I attended, I did well. There were job offers lined up before I even put in an application. And uh, shortly after having graduated, um, and by the way, I had my second child in the middle of going to to college. So it was a handful, a four-year-old and a baby. I came back out wanting to work within my home community. So I headed back to the farm. I got sick. Um, I got a really bad flu and I never got better. I lost control of The migraines that I had, we didn't realize that they were uh, fueled by other things. My immune system started to attack me. And at that point, my health took a turn for the worse. So I didn't really leave the farm. I stayed. I farmed with my dad for as long as I could. And then I spent a lot of time in bed more than I was out uh, while I looked and searched for a way to improve my health.
1: So what was the diagnosis
0: at that point? The diagnosis at that point was you have migraines and we don't know. The The running theory at the time, and, and probably still is, is that I'd had a complication from medications. There had been a medical error treating treating me when I was younger at a time when my immune system was vulnerable and my body was developing. And that had resulted in my immune system not working, was restarted. When it was restarted, it just didn't work right. So at the time, they called it developed immune deficiency syndrome. Now I believe they call it immune dysregulation. For a while, they thought I had this autoimmune problem, and it looked very much like it. And then a year later, it would be gone, and there would be something else. Underlying that, there was uh, an inflammatory condition that we didn't have a diagnosis for. And it uh, was only recently diagnosed, to be honest with you, 20 years ago, I was wrestling with this. It was only recently diagnosed, and it's a a rare form of arthritis, palindromic arthritis. I have migraines uh, that I've had since I was a child, but they've proven to be unusual. They've caused strokes, they've caused neurological impairment, and down the road, after lots of time um, having difficulty finding a way to manage them, um, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor. So apparently that complicated treatment plans.
1: So wait a minute, did you actually have migraines per se, or did you have migraines from the tumor
0: the only way to know for sure would be to remove the tumor but i've developed hypersensitive pain system traditionally it was called chronic pain syndrome and what that means is that if i have a surgery or i break my leg there is a much higher risk that that pain won't go away um, that my body will perceive that pain indefinitely. So with that location, etc., we haven't removed the brain tumor. We know that it affects the headaches. We're pretty confident it affects the treatment of the headaches and it's our ability to control it. But I can't give you that answer because we don't know. And that's part of living in a body with chronic pain. A lot of times you just don't know the answer.
1: Right. Okay. Yeah. So I don't remember you mentioning the brain tumor before. So I'm trying to process that given the myriad other things you're about to share.
0: Yeah, it was, um, you know, it's funny because when I, when I got that diagnosis, my doctor had sent me, I'd had a bunch of really weird symptoms and I was having trouble controlling my right hand. And he sent me for an MRI and he said, you know, with these headaches, with what's happening, the reasonable step is to rule out a brain tumor, chances that you have one, slim to none. I mean, this is just a necessary step in the process. So I went, I had it done. I came back. And uh, about two weeks later, I got a phone call from a neurosurgeon saying, we need to see you right away, like in a few days. When I talked to my family doctor, and I learned that I had a brain tumor. I went home and I remember thinking, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the thing that caused all that pain. Maybe this is the thing that makes my body not work right. And I was so excited. I held out. And with the knowledge that I have about chronic pain, I know how dangerous that thinking is. And I know how rarely that happens, but I couldn't help it. I'm an average pain patient. And I we were so excited about having a brain tumor because what if we could just cut this problem out of me and I would be free. When it turned out that they couldn't, I found myself in this weird place where I'm arguing with a neurosurgeon about the the validity of taking a tumor out, of having him cut my head open and doing brain surgery because I was still clinging to this little faint hope that it would cure everything. And, you know, I've got a really good neurosurgeon, and I'm grateful that he took the time to educate me before I made decisions. But um, it turned out leaving it in was safer, and the likelihood of it curing all my problems, very slim, and the likelihood of it making things worse, fairly high.
1: Okay. So now I understand why why you're still living with the the tumor. So there were you have a lot of experience of, with the healthcare system, but there were two things that uh, you wanted to share. Take us on those journeys.
0: So it took me um, a long time to find help. And I get maybe I'm not a simple case, um, don't respond the way I normally should. But I had reached a point where so many doctors had given up on me. I didn't have help. I didn't have a plan. My life was spiraling down the drain. And I did one last ditch effort. And I found a doctor. And I found a doctor who promised me that he would not give up on me. And I found a doctor who began to put together a plan. Part of that plan was actually managing the pain. If we couldn't solve the problem, then let's get some management down so that I could reclaim my life. And
1: And Tracy, can you unpack the pain a bit? Where is it? How constant? One to 10?
0: I have a headache every day. Right now, talking to you, I have a headache. And it's right now, it's about a three. So if I stop and think about it, I can feel it. If I lay down, I notice it. But if I'm up and moving, it's probably not a problem. Back then, without help, it was a six, a seven. And then I had migraines on top of that that were hitting with every weather pressure change any major emotional reaction and we had no control over it so those were seven eight nine and sometimes ten and could last for days at a time and I'd reach a point where one bad bout of pain could trigger the next and that bad bout of pain could trigger the next and so I was in a in a, in a pain spiral. I also had, at the time they just sort of referred to it, dumped it into fibromyalgia. Um, they told me it's not likely fibromyalgia, but we don't know exactly what it is. That's that immune dysregulation. My body's attacking itself. That pain can range anywhere from a three to a seven. But back then, um, before we had any control, it was at least an eight. So literally getting up and going to the bathroom or getting food for myself became really challenging, really, really difficult, pain-filled.
1: Torturous.
0: Torturous is the right word. And, you know, I wasn't sleeping. The pain was so bad and I have a sleep disorder that made it more complicated. I wasn't eating properly because I never had, a, I never had uh, an appetite and I was constantly nauseous from the pain. It was a spiraling descent because one made the the other worse. The more time I spent in bed because of the headaches, the worse the body pain got. The worse the body pain got, the less likely I was to eat properly. When pain got high and wasn't controlled, it triggered the next round of complications, uh, adrenal crises, hormonal crises, and inability to absorb nutrients from my diet. And it just sort of spiraled to all of these crisis is. I don't know how else to put it. Just, it was like one crisis after another with my health and those weigh as heavy on you and on your body as the pain does because you never quite find your feet. You never get a chance to wrestle with pain because you're just constantly responding to crisis after crisis.
1: Okay. So how long has this been going on? And how are you managing to pay bills, raise your kids? That was
0: tough. So i had had headaches since childhood. And in fact, likely I was born this way. Uh, a neurologist that I had been seeing Talked to me about the fact that the type of call at the length and so on that I had as an infant was likely uh, infantile migraines. But at the time, you know, the rule was children didn't get headaches and they didn't experience pain that way. So it wasn't diagnosed then. But it was something that I had wrestled with all my life. As I got older, before I went to college, it was getting worse. The headaches were coming more frequently. After college, so in my 20s, in my mid to late 20s is when that spiral took off. One thing leading to another until it was just a, a catastrophic mess. And I'm 51 now. So it's been, it's been a few years. <laughs> it's been a few years that we've been doing this. How do I pay for kids? Uh, well, to be honest with you, I had to be reliant on on my parents. Uh, we lived out at the farm, so I didn't have the overhead of rent. Um, and at the same time, I had to get creative about writing. I couldn't go back to my career, or sorry, my, my income. I couldn't go back to my career. So I found opportunities, uh, writing, doing some online work, whatever I could find that could make a buck, to be honest with you.
1: Yeah, as many people living with disabilities know, it's, uh, it's a real struggle.
0: It, it really was. And the funny thing is, is I was set up, like, literally, I'd worked so hard to get to this place where this future was going to be very rosy. The, the pathway that I was on would leave me absolutely independent to raise these children by myself if I needed to and comfortably. And I was pretty proud of myself. I was pretty proud of myself to get there. It was life-altering. And in that time, I had been looking for help. Prior to getting that sick, I had been looking for help. Once I got sick, I would say it took about 10 years for me to find help. And when I did, when I did find help, the doctor who who took me on, he made me that promise that he wouldn't give up on me. And even then, my experience had taught me not to trust it. So I was very slowly piecing out the information of my experience to him instead of just laying it out on the line. So in the beginning of our relationship, it took a couple of three years before we had the whole picture on the table I regret that now. I wasted time, but I had heard so many people tell me that I was I was uh, making it up. I was faking it. I was lazy. I was trying to get out of work, that I was drug-seeking. I'd, I'd heard it all up to that point, and I was used to that judgment. And usually the judgment came when I didn't respond to a treatment plan that they thought should work or when I developed a new symptom that didn't fit what they decided this was. And by the nature of my disease, that's kind of always the case. My my doctor now, he's sort of on quicksand with me because what we know about me today may not be true tomorrow. So yeah, it was, it was tough finding that help, but it, I found it, about 10 years I found it.
1: So it sounds like because you had a decade or more of being gaslighted and disbelieved by physician after physician, that you were trying to protect yourself by only slowly doling out the information to this new doctor until you knew you could trust him and be totally open.
0: Absolutely. And it was unfair. He was a good, he was a good doctor, never gave me any reason to doubt him. But when you have faced uh, that much judgment and those many people blaming you, you start um, to protect yourself. And it's not uncommon. You'll hear pain patients say, I never tell them that I have fibromyalgia up front. Or if I go to emergency room, I don't tell them that I have that condition because then they pass judgment. And I found myself naturally in that boat where I, I guarded. And I, I think the final straw had been my pain led to seizures. I, I, went, I went to my family doctor, at the one before this, and I had said to him, and I believed he was still committed uh, to helping me. And I, and I told him about these missing gaps of time. And he looked at me and he said, oh, well, that's drug-induced. I'm like, "What, what?" And the only thing he had given me for pain through that time was 30 Tylenol3s, and honestly, I didn't use them for the headaches because they didn't work, but sometimes for the body pain, it might help. and I used them the way he had prescribed, but he had decided that these were drug-induced stupors from me taking too much, and he took that away without replacing it with any other form of help. And I sat there. I had taken my dad to that appointment. I was desperate. And I sat on the bed and I looked at him and I said, does this mean you've given up on me? And he looked up and said, well, there's only so much we can do if you're going to keep making up symptoms. There's evidence. I mean, my father was there. He had seen them. He had watched them. This wasn't unusual. There was a test showing that this was a probable situation. I mean, the EEG showed that there was something going on. And yet, even with the evidence in front of him, the judgment was on me. When I left that appointment, I gave up. I'm going to be honest with you. I crawled into bed. I didn't seek medical attention. I, I didn't look for help my family was scared. I would throw up until I was bleeding and they'd be worried and I'd say, it's not enough blood, I'm not going to die. It was my children becoming aware of how far I degraded and how bad it had gotten and becoming afraid that caused me to try one more time. They were afraid I was going to die. And I thought I had done a good job hiding it from them. (laughs) I thought, that they thought I was going to be okay, so it was shocking to me, and that made me try again. That made me get up and give it another another go. When you are constantly traumatized by engagement with any entity, whether it's a human being, uh, the company you work for, the medical system, it it doesn't matter. If you're constantly traumatized going in there, pretty soon. You were going to do whatever it takes to protect yourself from it. And usually you would avoid it. You would quit your job. You would break up with an abusive spouse. You um, would seek help that allowed you to find the strength to move on to a different path. But when you have chronic pain, when you have chronic health issues, you're tied to the medical system. You don't have, there's nowhere else to go. You can't go to a veterinarian the dentist won't help you with this. There's only one place and you just have to keep getting up, dusting yourself off and walking back through that door. And every time you do, the risk is there and it wears you down.
1: Yeah, that's the pretty unique thing about medical trauma is that we can't especially because we're so sick and disabled, we can't completely divorce ourselves of the medical system. We are forced to engage with it. That's why when we find somebody we feel safe with, we hold on to those folks really tight.
0: Well, exactly. And that's what happened with this doctor. He became a lifeline. Now, for me, he started to manage my pain, and that required opioid therapy. Uh, We tried other things, but that required opioid therapy. The management of my pain improved my life, but it wasn't enough to give me back a life or get me out of bed. And from that, that point, it was, first of all, keeping me stable, chasing after the reason why I'm not absorbing iron from my diet or why I'm deficient in B12 or why my heart rate's through the roof this week. And, and he did that, but he also cheerleaded. He also asked me how I was. He encouraged me to learn. I had become a partner in my pain management. I came in with ideas and we ruled some out and we tried some. It became the most life-changing experience that I had. My trust in him was complete even knowing that tomorrow my body could do something truly horrific and we can't plan for it. I had faith that there was someone who would help me. And then I lost my doctor. And there's many reasons why patients will lose their doctor. Sometimes they move, sometimes they run into trouble with their medical authority. Sometimes they retire or pass away. What we underestimate is what you said earlier. Losing not only my medical care, but that rock. Clinging to that hope that tomorrow was going to still be okay because there was somebody who wouldn't give up on me, somebody who'd proven themselves. This relationship had proven itself. And it forced me to go back out into the world to engage with the medical profession in mass. And I'm gonna be honest with you, it didn't go well. <laughs> after, after the 10, 13 years that I was with him and I went from bedridden to on my feet and running uh, uh, an organization to help pain patients, I go back out into the world And I call a doctor's office and say, taking new patients? Yes, we are. Could you tell us about you? Well, I'm a chronic pain patient. Oh, you know, we don't have that kind of space. Or I do get in the front door and meet with the doctor. And the minute that they hear that I'm using opioid therapy, it's like, oh yeah, we we won't do that. We we, uh, don't want to get in trouble with our regulator. I heard doctors pass judgment about if I wasn't willing to take out my brain tumor then they shouldn't be treating my pain because if there was any chance that the tumor was the cause of it then it should just be removed and when I pointed out that I had one of the best neurosurgeons in Canada they said I should fire him they could find somebody else to take it out they didn't know me for more than four minutes they didn't know the history they didn't know the reason for that but they they passed a judgment and in fact they made medical recommendation based on an opinion without enough evidence to draw that conclusion um, other doctors deemed me a drug addict opioid use disorder they didn't have enough time to do a workup. they didn't have any backup from a psychologist in fact if they looked hard enough they would see that i had been assessed on more than one occasion <laughs> And that there was never any indication of it. But they didn't do that kind of work. They just passed judgment. I heard a doctor. A doctor said, you can't consider your life better as long as those are your medical choices. And I walked out of his office thinking, bedridden and hardly able to look after myself. To what you see right now, you can't say that there's been an improvement. Maybe it's good you're not going to be my doctor. The problem is that it took 60 to find somebody, it took 60 of those kinds of appointments. And each time it chipped at me, each time I had to bear the brunt of judgment or hear that I wasn't worth taking a risk or that they're too busy to deal with somebody as complex as I am and the judgment dripped and it was hard. And and here I am supporting other patients and encouraging them and feeling my armor being torn apart around me. And at the same time, I free fell from my medication. It was brutal. It caused stresses on my system that were doing damage that we couldn't see at that time but were causing me physical harm. My condition degraded and I rapidly began to spiral backwards because all of my medical care had stopped. I didn't have anybody to assist. So I was back to having seizures. I hadn't had one in 13 years or 12 years. And I was back to having seizures. I was back to pain begetting pain. I was back to being in bed more than I was out. I was struggling to maintain um, the life that I had built again.
1: So you had to go through that loss again.
0: Exactly. And this time it was harder because this time I knew it could be prevented. I knew that somebody reaching out and helping, I knew that not losing my doctor I wouldn't be in this position. I knew that if it wasn't for that bias and judgment, that I wouldn't be spiraling out of control. And it was hard to take. It was hard. It was a tough pill to swallow. But I wasn't the only patient. Every other patient in that practice that was being managed for pain faced the same thing. We all had to deal with the grief of losing that relationship We had to deal with the insecurity of losing that support, that knowledge that we had somebody in our corner, that ability to trust that if something goes wrong tomorrow, you're going to be okay. And then we had to go out into the world and face the judgment and the bias. And for many, when they finally did find help, the first thing that happened was a complete decimation of their pain plan. It's like, oh yeah, I don't do it that way. There's a different way to do it. So we're just going to disassemble everything you know, everything you've done, and do it a different way. You don't really have a relationship with that doctor. You don't know them. You don't know if they're going to be there. Will we go back again if it didn't work? But now you face what little you have left. The work that you did to get to that particular pain plan being disassembled by people you don't have a relationship with it was it was very dark times very dark time
1: and so during this time you're not just advocating for yourself you've gotten into advocating for other pain patients
0: um so we advocated by addressing issues with medical authorities by participating in development of policies and plans but we also work with groups of patients that are in crisis like this or individuals who are in crisis and so while i'm going through this all these other patients that were struggling and couldn't find help the only place to turn was us and and so we we buckled up, we toughened up, and we did what we could to help them. And those stories were heartbreaking. I had the support of a husband at this point who who really cared, uh, who was really understanding. And I had a fire in me that was fueling my determination. But a lot of these patients were were struggling to find that. And to be honest with you, there were so many times that we had to respond to suicide threats. We got calls from spouses saying they won't get out of bed, they won't make a call. Um, We had patients who had been pretty psychologically stable prior to that, who were now suffering depression, anxiety, and later diagnosed with PTSD. And there was nowhere for them to turn. There was no one who understood. There was no one to give them advice or support them. And so we did.
1: Wow. So it it occurs to me that anger, rage, is a natural response to trauma. And it sort of sounds like you funneled that anger into advocacy, helping others.
0: I always believed that anger in itself is a useless emotion, not one that you can avoid. It's a natural emotion, but it doesn't get you anywhere. And I'm not very good at being helpless. So, yeah, I turned anger into advocacy. If we're going to endure this, if we have no choice at this moment, then by God, I will make sure that the next generation doesn't have to. My children will not experience this. My grandchildren will not experience this. The people out there who are struggling, they need a light. And I didn't have one. I was very isolated when my pain got bad. It's a very, very lonely existence because even those people around you who do Remain connected, they don't understand. They don't, they can't. You can't understand chronic pain till you live in that body. There was nobody that I knew with chronic pain. There was no light on the horizon. There was no hopeful story. There was no person to share my tears or frustrations. There was nobody to bounce ideas off of. So, part of what I wanted to do was create a community in which that was available. Because I felt that, at the very least, if we have to endure this, let's do it together.
1: Misery loves company,
0: yeah, and sometimes, um misery fuels strength. sometimes, when you're in that deep misery, but you see someone else struggling, you find the strength to help them, and in doing so, you help yourself. I found that chronic pain patients are some of the most creative, compassionate, giving people. They are so kind uh, to other pain patients. They're so kind and they're so supportive and helpful, but they can be so hard on themselves. They've internalized all that judgment. And when the crisis hits, it's, it's pretty easy to fall into, I can't. I can't save myself, I can't help myself, I can't do this again. But when another person says that, they're right there going, yes, you can. This is what you're gonna do. This, you know, We're all there with you, we're gonna do it. And sometimes that misery that may have brought them into the group fuels their ability to find the strength to keep fighting. So how
1: do you, when you're having a, a bad day and lots of symptoms, what do you say to yourself, sort of get through the day?
0: If it's a, a 10 on the Richter scale, I say, turn out the lights and leave me alone. <laughs> I hunker down, I pull the blankets over my head like any other pain patient in really bad shape and say, go away. Because you know what? Um, I've learned that that's part of my process and I, I need to have those bad days and it's okay. I've learned to approach a lot of them with humor um the jokes my team and I if you were to go back and look at our messenger chats they would just crack you up because we find this way to joke about what we're dealing with sort of find the dark humor in it and that sense of humor drags me through and then there are days where I sit on the edge of the bed, and to be honest with you, I take a deep breath, I hang my head a little bit, I roll my shoulders, and it looks like I'm getting ready for a prize fight. But I know that in that day, everything I do is going to require willpower. I know that every engagement that I have is going to take um, effort. And I know that my being on my feet and out in the world is of value. I know that it is important to my grandchildren who, who live with me. I know that it's important to my children. I know it's important to the patients that I engage with. And I know that even though in this moment, just putting my socks on is a complicated feat. That getting up is necessary you just you just have to, and sometimes it's just willpower. Just do it
1: so I hear there's a, a level of acceptance going on that today is going to be a ten on the Richter scale. I just have to accept that that's part of being sick um, and in addition to that, there's also the motivation slash willpower to just get it done because other people are depending on you.
0: Exactly. You know, when I first heard the term acceptance in pain, it was presented to me as if I just accept, I have pain, I will learn to live with the life that I have. I can guarantee you for about 10 years, if you would asked me if I accept my pain, the answer is no, I'm going to fight it tooth and nail. What I learned, is that acceptance isn't about roll over and die. Acceptance is about recognizing, okay, I have this condition. There are things I need to do for me. I need to rest at times. I need to have a 10 and be okay that it's going to be a 10 and that I'm not going to be on my feet. I need to prepare and plan if there's a special day that I want to be at. And I need to pace myself by accepting that those are part of my life and managing those things that I can, my life became less complicated with my pain. It didn't make my pain better. It's not a cure. It's about living the best life you can with your pain, despite your pain. That acceptance was an important step. It was certainly an important step. And I learned that especially for me, lack of motion, it, it's crippling. And no matter how bad it is today, the longer I'm off my feet, the worse it gets. And part of acceptance is it may hurt today, but I need to find a reason and the willpower and a way to keep moving as long as I can. Rest when I need to and get back up when I have to so that I don't spiral back.
1: Wow, so you must have really had to develop the ability to be flexible and adaptable to what your body is doing in any given moment or day.
0: Absolutely. It's funny because everybody goes, uh, What does your schedule look like? And my answer is, It's very flexible because, very honestly, I could wake up today and be unable to have this conversation with you. And I don't know. So, when I make plans, I have a plan, I have a backup plan. And if the plan goes to hell and the backup plan goes to hell, then we do something different. We respond to the need in the day. This organization takes a lot of hours at work, but I can't work a nine to five job. So if I'm up at 11 in in the evening, I may respond to a couple of emails. If I need to rest more in the morning, maybe work doesn't start till noon, but That flexibility in my life was necessary. And in the areas where you can't be flexible, you need to plan for it. Planning is important.
1: Yeah. So you you mentioned the group that you work with. Tell us about the the name of the group and the kind of work that you do.
0: So it's called Help Alberta's Pain. And we created um, an online community for chronic pain patients through Facebook we do education support and advocacy we're just launching our online support groups uh, this month which we're excited about we were doing support groups out in the community but covid kind of changed that and we found a way to get back on the game we work with medical authorities on development of policies plans strategies things like that but we also advocate we advocate when patients are getting a raw deal when Things are going wrong that is causing harm to my community, you can bet I'm going to show up and make, make, make some noise about it because it's time that we not be overlooked because we're in too much pain to be there and fight. So we needed to have a voice that could stand up for our rights, that could bring the frontline experience to those people making decisions about us and hold them accountable for the decisions that they're making. I couldn't do that job and collect all of the patient stories we were collecting and listen to them struggle without doing something. It would crush me. It would just, I I would have burnt out years ago. So what we did is we created um, an aspect of the organization that advocates for patients. One of the things that we do is we are connected with several clinics across the province of Alberta. If one of their chronic pain patients feels that something has gone wrong that they can't talk to their doctor about or their clinic about, they know that they can come to us. And our job is to help either educate the patient on how to handle it or to attend a meeting with the patient as their advocate with the doctor or the clinic to resolve the problem and help rebuild the doctor patient relationship. And I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud of that because if you could, Uh, have someone to hold your hand when you need that just for that moment and you learn and see how it can work Um, it prevents you from spending three years like I did not telling the doctor the whole story Uh, it prevents you from feeling hard done by when it's a matter of doctor speak doctor and patient speak patient and sometimes the best intentions the wires get crossed we also do that with uh, patients who reach out and are in trouble and the clinic isn't Um, connected. We respond to crises where large groups of patients have lost their doctor for whatever reason, and we will show up, help educate them, help guide them, help find resources within their community. Um, And in particularly uh, difficult situations, we will assist individuals uh, finding the care that they need. We kind of move towards that aspect of support and advocacy mostly to save me save me from from crushing under the weight of all of those sad stories but it also gives us the ability to hear what's going on out there patients talk to us they tell us my doctor said this this is what it's like in that region there's no doctors taking pain patients in this small town and and that gives us the knowledge that we need to take it to the authorities that are responsible for this
1: so your group is taking on some of the big gaps that the healthcare system is missing around pain patients, and also some of the social work aspect that's missing from the overall healthcare system. So is the government paying you for all of this good needed work, or how do you fund you and your team?
0: My team and myself are all volunteers. We are not funded any overhead costs for our organization I pay for. To begin with, the reason why we weren't funded was that when it came to the advocacy work that we needed to do at the time, there just couldn't be any question as to whether or not I had ties to anybody, Uh, drug companies, organizations, the government, whatever. I needed to be a free agent so that my voice folk for pain patients and only pain patients. Now that we've expanded into these other areas, yeah, it's time for us to start looking at funding. Things have gotten bigger, we need larger staff. And so we're growing. We're going through some we're going through some growing pains. But it's also our job to press the government, Alberta Health Services and the various authorities to pick up that slack. To understand that if this is a need that we're responding to and how much the need is there, it's not my job. We're covering, but it's our job to make sure that somebody picks that up and is professionally managing this for the well-being of pain patients.
1: Yeah, yeah. So now that COVID is coming into a second wave, at least here in Ontario, is it, are you having a second
0: wave in Alberta? We're starting to see the numbers go up for the fall.
1: And I'm seeing some long COVID patients also complaining about a lot of pain. So it kind of sounds like some of those folks are going to be relying on you and your team.
0: You know, I am really concerned about them. There's never there's never a good time to develop chronic illnesses, right? Um, one of the one of the big things that I notice popping up is chronic chronic fatigue for uh, some of the COVID long patients, as well as muscle aches and things. Um, I have chronic fatigue as part of that combination of immune things, and I'm worried about them being lost in the system and not knowing where support and resources are in this journey of illness. They're babies, they're young, they're new. And is the system prepared to do this without traumatizing them? Or are we just going to traumatize a large group of people all at once because they're not going to be understood? Are they going to be able to find their way to us? Because, you know, I still run into people who have had arthritis for 20 years, need a walker, can barely bathe themselves going, Oh, no, no, I don't have chronic pain. I have arthritis. And so, would they identify what they're going through in a way that would cause them to seek out resources where they might lay? And that concerns me. I guess education, these people need education and they need it quickly. They need it early in their journey. If I had that education early in my journey, if I had known the things that I know now, my journey would have looked very different. I don't know that the system is ready for them. I know that there's work going on across Canada. Yeah, I'm worried about them.
1: Yeah, I have yet to hear any health leader in Canada even utter long COVID. So there doesn't seem to be any public acknowledgement of long COVID patients. So that's medically marginalizing slash invisibilizing them. And then, as we know, the healthcare system, as it is, is definitely not prepared for the pandemic folks or the folks who, after six months, become ME-CFS patients. Uh, yeah, so it, it's not going to be
0: pretty well, at we, all. We have some really uh, great minds out there that I've seen talking about it, I've seen working on it, I've seen discussing it. And to be honest with you, if we were going to be taking this seriously, our federal government needs to round those people up and say, get together. Let's get a plan. Let's get going. And I, I don't, I haven't heard of any big works, but then I've been kind of busy recently um, on that, but you're right. We're going to marginalize these people. We're risking making it worse because what I talked about, about the side effects of my pain, like, my pain got really bad and I had an adrenal crisis and the adrenal crisis led to a blah, 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 which then required treatment. But the side effect of that treatment was, and the longer you go down the path without a directed approach, without knowledgeable people and without a plan, more likely you are to pick up more side effect issues that complicate it. So these patients coming out with COVID long, they start hitting the fatigue and if you've lived with chronic fatigue for a long time you know that those days where you can you do but early in the process we often would go i'm still tired or i'm my muscles are still aching and i don't want to make it worse so we held still right these people coming out if we don't get to them quickly if we don't have a plan for them and if they are allowed to founder around looking for the expertise and specialties that they need for six months, eight months, a year, two years, by the time they get treatment, it's going to be much more difficult to address. And I'm concerned about that because we see that all the time with pain patients. We see pain patients early in the process, not being able to see a specialist or not being able to get some of the basic testing done to identify their problem or get a basic plan in place to manage it and we watched them still struggle for 10 years.
1: Today the uh, Canadian government released the, the current issue of preventing chronic disease as part of the title of the journal and it was about all about COVID research yet none of the COVID research in this journal was about long COVID. Yet the title is about preventing chronic disease. So that's when, where our, our, our government is right now.
0: When I say our government, it doesn't matter which party has been in charge. Okay. I've been around for 20 years doing this. It doesn't matter which party is in charge. The attention to chronic illness has never been there. The recognition that a good plan. Proper resources, early access to treatment in the long term will save money, but we've never invested in it. Research in chronic pain in Canada, even though it affects 30% of the population, is I think it's 0.25% of the research budget. It affects more people than diabetes, HIV, and cancer put together, and yet there is very little work until the last couple of years that has been done so when you tell me that we created this chronic illness thing talking about COVID and didn't talk about COVID long I should be surprised I should be horrified but it's more like oh that's just one more thing to deal with it's like have we not learned have we not learned our lesson and honestly I don't think we have
1: Yeah, that's an excellent point that it's not really the government, whatever government is in power, it's the medical system. And as you were saying earlier, it is a big ship to try to steer in a different direction. Takes a long time.
0: You know, that was shocking to me as an advocate. I never expected that, you know, everything happens easily. And I never expected that policy changes and thinking ever happens easily. But one of the things that I'm frustrated by is that turning that ship, you can put a giant green flag out there and go, go this way. We went every other direction and it didn't work or this isn't working, go this way. And instead, we find people double down on bad decisions. We see things slip through the crack because there is a way to do it. We always do it this way. But every time we do it that way, something slips through the cracks. The same thing slip through the crack. We're doing the same thing with COVID long. We're not putting the effort we need to in it. And I'm not sure how many people will be impacted. And I'm going to be honest with you. My fear we'll have some people who get COVID don't quite get better. What about the ones who start showing symptoms eight months a year down the road? The ones where it wasn't necessarily easy to tie it to COVID because we know that happens. Mm -hmm. We know that sometimes it can take a while for the immune system um, or the nervous system to really decide to do something bad So those patients, because we don't have anything in place for the ones that we can identify, those other ones are going to be even in worse shape.
1: Yeah, it's very scary. Now, in my head, I'm thinking there's another medical error story of your life that you wanted to share. Am I misremembering?
0: No, there was. Remember when I said that there was damage being done when I was free falling off my medication? Well. Two years after that, I've now got medical help, we're stabilizing, but I woke up one morning with chest pain. It started by throwing up out of the blue, chest pain, and because I still have a resistance of wanting to deal with the medical profession, I I decided that it was something else or could be something else, and I would see if it would go away. My body does weird things. I can get a pain somewhere, and in a day, it's gone, so... I decided to let it rise. By the next morning, I knew I was in trouble. I was in a lot of pain. I couldn't catch my breath. Hot splashes, nausea. um, Pain was running straight up the center to the back of my throat, up into the back of my jaw, out over my left shoulder, coming in waves. And I'm pretty good at handling pain, but this was pain that was pretty extreme. And I finally told my husband that I needed him to take me to the hospital. Which caused every alarm bell to go off in his head because I'm the last place you will find me is in an emergency room. I went into the emergency room. They took me back fairly quickly. Doctor came in and saw me, said, We're gonna run some tests. We're gonna do something for your pain. And I as he walked out of the room, I remember feeling a relief. Like I felt, okay, they're taking this seriously. And then the nurse walked in. And she held up a syringe. And she said, the doctor ordered this for your pain. It's Tordal. Let me guess, this doesn't work for you. Tordal is an NSAID. It's a a non-opioid medication. And they had obviously looked at my file and saw that I use daily opioid therapy. They had obviously drawn a conclusion in those few minutes that I was drug-seeking, that this wasn't a serious problem, And that I was going to whine and fuss and be a problem because they weren't giving me the drugs I wanted. It was was gut-wrenching. I mean, I'm there because this is the worst day of my life. I knew at that moment that I was facing bias. What I didn't know is that the bias was so strong that it overrode a hospital's own protocols for how to deal with heart attack symptoms. I was presenting I looked like a heart attack patient. A heart attack should be suspected. You never give an NSAID to a patient with heart attack symptoms. The blood work for the heart enzymes hadn't come back yet, but the doctor had decided that it was just chest inflammation, told me to go home and take more Tordol. And I left wanting to believe it was just chest inflammation because I don't want to go back, but knowing something was wrong because. I knew then that there's no way that the treatment that I got wasn't filled with bias and judgment. Was it safe for me to go home? I wasn't sure because I was still in as much pain leaving as I was when I arrived. I was still having the same symptom. When I got home, I didn't know how much of this I could use. I'd used it for migraines, but I'd never ever used more than one. And so I did what a responsible patient does. And I called the doctor managing my pain and said, how much of this can I use safely? And he said, none. I need you to go to another emergency room. I need you to go to this one because it's a heart attack center. This is a place where they, they deal with this. They have protocols. You're not going to sit in the waiting room waiting forever. You need to go in. I have never heard you sound like this before. I need you to ask for an ultrasound of your heart, cardiac ultrasound. I need you to go now. If it was anybody else in the world, I probably wouldn't have gone. But that is now my pain doctor. This is the person who I have put my life in their hands. And he is asking me to do something, so I will. I went to that hospital with my husband by my side. And they left me sitting in the emergency room for six hours. They called a patient who had gone out for a cigarette and wasn't there when they called them. The patient had come back. A while later, they called him again, and he wasn't there because he'd gone across the road to Tim Hortons to get coffee with his friends. He came back and went up to the front and complained that he hadn't been called yet. They said, we called you twice. And so he sat down. Ten minutes later, they called him, and he got taken to the back. And my husband is begging for help because the pain is getting worse. And the the severity of the crushing in my chest was getting worse. When I finally got to the back, they left me sitting back there before I saw anybody for an hour. And when the doctor came in, he'd already gone through my file. He asked me why I was there and I told him. And I asked him for that cardiac ultrasound. And he said, we don't treat this kind of problem in emergency rooms. We don't treat it with that kind of test. And when I asked him what problem he thought he was treating, he wouldn't tell me. Then he told me he had to run a heart trace, do blood work. So he was going to do that. He was going to put me in that chair over there. And when those things came back, he was sending me home. And that's it. Do you understand? That is all I am going to do for you. Over the next few minutes, while they were setting up the heart trace, um, I listened Two nurses and doctors make comments about me being a frequent flyer because I had already been in one emergency room. I haven't been in an emergency room for pain in 15 years. And the only time I had been in an emergency room in that time was because a doctor sent me to an emergency room. I heard the doctor say he wasn't going to contribute to my problem. I'm not sure what he thought the problem was, but I suspect he hadn't figured out that it was a heart attack because the reality is he wasn't doing much to help that either. While I listened to these judgments, nobody was looking me in the eye. Nobody asked me about my pain level. Nobody asked me about my pain. They avoided it at all costs. I tried very hard to be the patient that they tell us that they want. I said, Thank you. Even in that pain, I tried to put a smile on and say thank you when they brought me a glass of water, even though all evidence was they were mad at me for bringing me the glass of water. They hooked me up to the heart monitor. And within minutes, the alarms and bells start going off. My heart rate dropped to 20 beats per minute. The same people came back into the room. And all of a sudden I feel somebody rubbing my leg and the nurse is telling me, it's okay, honey. You're okay. We're here. We've got you. We just need you to relax. And all of a sudden, everybody in the room was worried about me knowing that I was safe. Suddenly, somebody asked me what kind of pain I had. They seemed to be concerned about it. And, and they kept telling me that they were there. They've got me. And I looked at my husband and said, shit, empathy. Am I going to die? And then my heart stopped. Now, in that moment, I went from being a problem pain patient who they suspected of drug seeking to a cardiac victim. All of a sudden, people were concerned about how much pain I was in. They asked me questions about what might have caused this. They were more interested in understanding my symptoms. In that moment, it was clear that the bias towards pain patients had led them to make a diagnosis, not based on evidence, not based on the facts in front of them, not based on this case, but they made a medical decision based on the preconceived notion that any person who uses an opioid in the province in Canada is drug-seeking at hospitals. And that bias nearly killed me. I can see that by not going to the hospital, I put my life at risk. I made a judgment to put my life at risk. I recognize the error in that decision. The problem is I'm not sure that they recognize the error in their decision making, because my story may be a unique condition. The reason why I was taken to the emergency room may be unique. My face is unique. My past history is unique. But this story isn't. I've got stories from all over the province, from all over Canada, where patients are having symptoms ignored where they're being sent home only to find out that it was cancer. One of our patients went to one emergency room. They wouldn't do any kind of workup or physical and sent her home. She called me crying. I said, go to the other hospital. She drove for almost two hours and her appendix ruptured in the breezeway at that hospital. We had a patient who for months sought out help for pain that was unusual and different. And they blew it off as fibromyalgia and drug seeking. And it turned out to be cancer. We have a history within the medical profession of allowing bias and judgment to affect medical decisions. And it has never, ever worked. It has never not caused significant harm. And we have not learned our lesson. But what I can tell you is that. Right now, across Canada, the bias and judgment that chronic pain patients are facing is worse than it has ever been. And it is putting lives at risk. And it put my life at risk. That trauma we talked about earlier, that's just one more scratch on my blackboard. That's one more time where me reaching out to the medical profession for help in time of need. I had to take a licking and then they wanted me to go and get physiotherapy and go see a cardiologist and go see this person and go see that person. They want me to eagerly and willingly engage and throw myself into these programs in order to improve the quality of my life. But every time I take an opportunity like that, I put myself at risk for one more time one more person to judge it's a painful reminder that we haven't come all that far
1: yeah exactly uh, painful on every level physically emotionally socially ethically it occurs to me that when they realized when they saw the evidence that you were having a heart attack that their empathy their, their concern wasn't for you their concern was ooh we just fucked up, and there's witnesses. We may lose this patient. We may kill this patient. I suspect their concern my, was more about their reputation than about my your husband.
0: Health. My husband watched this from a different perspective. I was kind of busy at the time, um, so I missed some of what was going on. That was his impression. He said that when the alarms went off, the nurse stood there, fiddling with the machine, and went to the point of turning it off and on it was almost as though my heart rate dropping to 20 in a drug seeker was that's not possible he said the realization after she had flicked the machine off and on and it went off again he said you could watch it wash over her face she just went pale so yeah you know what they did know I had the opportunity to talk to a nurse that was in the second emergency room later and I hold out hope that if she is in another situation like that, she will behave differently. But she admitted that she heard the conversations. She told me that the judgment had been passed. I mean, she had to be careful about it, but she said there was an opinion of what this situation was and I didn't question it. Only takes one person on that team to whisper to somebody else, drug seeker, I've seen this before, or another one of them, and it can corrupt an entirely good team. It's like a virus.
1: Yeah, yeah. I a couple of weeks ago, I was chatting with a provincial advocate here, and I was saying that, yes, we've got this COVID pandemic going on, but there's another hidden pandemic that's been going on for decades. And that's the, the gaslighting and the medical errors in our system. And she wholeheartedly agreed with that.
0: You know, the medical errors, like if you look back through my story within the realm of chronic pain, it's actually almost acceptable. I, I, I don't know how to explain it, but every doctor who judged me to have Opioid use disorder or an addiction, or to be drug seeking, was making a medical diagnosis because opioid use disorder and addiction are a very serious mental health disorder that requires assessment, going through a diagnos- diagnostic process to come up with a diagnosis and then a treatment plan. So every time somebody went oh, drug seeker, that is a diagnosis when it comes from a medical professional. That is medical malpractice to throw diagnoses that you haven't done workups on, but it's almost acceptable. Every time one of those doctors said, cut out the brain tumor, without having known what they were dealing with, was making a medical recommendation based on an opinion, not a fact. Every person who judged me as just a problem patient in that hospital, was diagnosing me with psychiatric problems without knowing me, talking to me, knowing my history. No psychiatrist would do that. That's their job. They're better able to identify those things and they wouldn't do that. But we have allowed it to become commonplace in the medical system and we don't talk about it in terms of medical error, medical malpractice. We talk about it in terms of, oops, it was an opinion.
1: Yeah, it doesn't even get recorded, that type of medical error. And it's so ubiquitous. And I don't think there's anyone who has complex chronic illness, which in and of itself can be traumatic, all the loss that goes with that. But to have another layer of trauma added on repeatedly by the healthcare system it's just unbelievable even though i talk to people every day about it it's still unbelievable
0: well you know think about it this way if if a woman or a man was in a, uh, a an office and was dealing with sexual misconduct or sexual assault by somebody in that office. Okay. Or if they had been sexually abused by an individual in their life. And I said to you that I realized that the person who abused them had the most knowledge and understanding of sexual abuse. So we're going to send the victim to the perpetrator for treatment. Everybody educated in this field or not would scream. The red, the, the the red walls would go up. They would encircle that victim and say, No, no, you don't get to traumatize them. And if I sent the victim back to the workplace, and the workplace said, Yeah, um, well, just ignore them. Pretend it didn't happen, go back in there and work alongside, and we'll make sure it doesn't happen again, we would see. Outrage that company would be in so much trouble, it would become public knowledge. But we don't do that because we don't see patients as victims this way. And so I get up and I keep walking back in the door where the perpetrator is, where the crime has happened, where the injury and harm was done. And I don't have a choice, and nobody's screaming about it. Nobody's saying encircle that victim. Nobody's saying, let's make sure this doesn't happen again. No, don't get me wrong. There are people who have difficulty managing the chronic illness that they live with. And there are people who have opioid use disorder and addiction. And these are very serious chronic illnesses all on their own. There are chronic pain patients, some of who also have other issues that make it difficult for them to engage with the system in a way where they aren't perceived as problematic. But I would propose, though, that if you look at the vast majority and you wonder why they don't respond well to somebody messing with what they have or they are seeking assistance in emergency rooms all the time or why they seem to be very defensive and argumentative, I'd say, A, they can't find good care. B, they've been traumatized by the system, and C, they need help. They need help. And if I came into the hospital with an arm fracture and then had a heart attack, we wouldn't decide not to treat the heart attack because we already treated the arm fracture. Well, if we are sending people in who have chronic pain and another disorder, there's no reason why we can't treat both and why we shouldn't compassionately do that. There's no excuse for this. There's no excuse for for this kind of harm. And if it's okay to treat us this way, those people coming in with COVID long, they're in trouble. The next time a new illness strikes, it's okay. The next time the system gets stressed or tapped or running out of money or whatever, it's okay to go back and you know pass judgment on those difficult. Uh, mental health patients that take up so much time, and on those challenging ethnic patients, because it's so hard to understand them. It's okay, because we made it okay to do it to one vulnerable group, and we're, we're not doing anything about it.
1: Well, I think those wise words of observation of our system is a good place to have echoing in the listeners' ears. Tracy, thank you for not only sharing your experiences, uh, but also for the important work that you're doing, for the gaps that you're filling in in the healthcare system and the social system.
0: Thank you. I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and share this. It's been a mission for a long time.
1: Well, a big thanks to Tracy for sharing not only her experiences with the healthcare system, but also for all of the advocacy work she does. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others. You can support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to Patreon. Dot com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with medical error and or living with complex chronic illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com.